You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Friday, May 11th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a community speaker series event titled, From Online Patient Communities to Open Notes, How Can Transparency and Technology Improve Our Health? Elena Fogoto, Transparency Policy Project Director of Research at the Ash Center, Arkan Fung, Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean, and Winthrop Laughlin McCormick Professor of Citizenship and Self-Government, and Jan Walker, Associate Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, Research Faculty in the Division of General Medicine and Primary Care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and Co-Founder of Open Notes, discussed using technology to enable better transparency in patient health data. Let's listen in. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for uh, spending your lunch with us. My name is Arkan Fung, and I am a faculty member here at the Kennedy School. And I think uh, my most relevant role uh, in this event is I'm one of the co-directors, along with uh, Mary Graham and uh, David Weil of the Transparency Policy Project. And that effort is devoted to understanding the phenomenon of, mostly in the United States, but also a little bit internationally, of uh, transparency and when it works and when it doesn't and how it can both improve uh, public policy and social outcomes but then also how some forms of transparency do the opposite set us back in different ways uh, our research director is Elena Fagotto and Elena and I along with Mary and David have worked on transparency issues for quite a long time uh, one of the books that came out of our effort is full disclosure the cover of which is back there. That book is largely about uh, kind of big public policies that uh, that force organizations of different kinds to disclose information. And we kind of view that as uh, uh, one phase in efforts to increase transparency in the public sector. And after we wrote that book, uh, we started looking at the rise of all of these digital technologies that allow the collection and creation of a very different kind of transparency, which is more crowdsourced and more peer-to-peer. And that's happening in many, many domains, from Amazon ratings, product and service ratings. But it's also happening in healthcare. And so the, the, the topic of today's discussion is health information technology and how health information and patient and provider engagement is creating uh, different kinds of information and engagement and transparency and how to think about this new and emergent space. Uh, and uh, Elena and Victoria have really done the heavy lifting for this project. So my role is just uh, kind of to introduce and then Elena will present some of the pro- uh, preliminary findings which have been generously funded by the Commonwealth Foundation, this work, I should add. Um, and then uh, we have a special guest, Jan Walker, who is the subject of one of the studies of one of the projects. She is the co-founder of Open Notes and uh, is an associate professor of medicine at the medical school and a member of the research faculty at uh, the Division of General Medicine and Primary Care at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Uh, In addition to her clinical work, Jan has an MBA, gives her the right skill set for being an entrepreneur in in the health technology space. And her primary interests are in patients' perspectives on care and the use of information technologies to improve patient experience and reorganize and improve primary care practice. She's written a lot in this space on hospitals, on data, on uh, electronic uh, technologies, and on the health system. And so uh, Elena will present 
some of the cases and framework that we've developed first, and then uh, Jan will go, and then I'll kibitz for just a couple minutes at the end before we open it up to anyone. Okay, so let's get started uh, because the presentation is, is long. Okay, so we'll be, thank you, well, first of all, thank you, uh, everybody, for being here today. We're delighted to have such a large crowd, and we'll be discussing uh, how transparency and technology can improve our health. And uh, what can we do with transparency and technology for our health? Well, I'll be transparent with you. This is what I've been researching uh, lately because I'm having a sinus infection, so we can access information <laughs> on Google. And Google has recently developed this side panel to refine the best uh, uh, findings and make it easier for users to uh, digest and understand information. Um, over 50% of patients in the U.S. are offered uh, access to part of their uh, electronic health record through a patient portal. Uh, this is my patient portal with Atrius Health, where I can, I can use it to message my provider, to book appointments, to look at part of my medical record. Unfortunately, Atrius Health doesn't let me access my clinical notes yet, but uh, Jan, <laughs> Jan is working on it, so hopefully I'll be yeah. able to look at my notes as well. Um, so these are mostly uh, technologies that we use to access information on our health. But what's new is that nowadays we can also use um, wearable medical devices and uh, or something like a Fitbit to generate and share health data. So the image you have here is, is an image of a, of a patient with type 1 diabetes who's wearing an insulin pump and a continuous glucose monitor which generates data continuously on uh, the insulin that is uh, um, uh, dosed to this patient and how the, her glucose is, is responding to the insulin. We can use the Fitbit to uh, track our health and, 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 you know, thousands of apps to communicate with our doctors, participate in research studies, or uh, adopt uh, healthier lifestyles. And we can also uh, use technologies to connect with others. And so, uh, as Arkham was saying, uh, a lot of health information is now crowdsourced. So when people are sick, they often seek out peer-to-peer um, -peer <coughs> communities. So online <laughs> communities where they can communicate with, uh, with uh, other um, patients to learn about their experience, what they're doing about their conditions. So this is a screenshot of a breastcancer.org community where women go to discuss starting chemotherapy in March 2018. I have shooting pains and redness and over it. And, and they get immediate feedback from others. And so um, we think that these are mm, important tools that have uh, uh, enabled the emergence of uh, some platforms or initiatives that combine all these features. So uh, to give you some background on our project, this is a year-long project funded by the Commonwealth Fund uh, in which we seek to understand, categorize, and create a taxonomy of what we think are the latest generation of these technology health initiatives. Um, so we picked eight uh, structured initiatives that allow patients to access health information, but also share and generate their health data and connect with others uh, with the objectives of engaging patients and improving their health. So 
we conducted about 100 interviews to uh, identify these platforms. So we consulted with experts to identify the best initiatives um, and also to develop <laughs> these case studies. So we talked to um, people like Jan and dozens and dozens of patients and, and health experts. And we're very grateful to all the people who donated their time for this research. Um, and some of the research questions we hope to answer with this project are, what are the objectives of these initiatives? What are their main characteristics and designs? And how uh, do designs match objectives? Um, is the information that these initiatives return to patients actionable and personalized? Um, are these initiatives for everybody or just for uh, more sophisticated patients? There's always a legitimate question of digital divide, right? So who are we creating these initiatives for? And what are some of their limitations? And so um, we grouped our case studies, we clustered them along their objectives. So the first objective is co-production of quality improvement. So these are two uh, initiatives that we examined, and their goal is really to involve patients and use patient data to improve the quality uh, of care. The first one is Improve Care Now. Improve Care Now started at Cincinnati Children's Hospital, and it's an initiative um, dedicated to uh, pediatric patients with inflammatory bowel disease, and it now involves 100 care centers that are members of this uh, initiative, and 28,000 patients who receive care of this um, of these centers. The other initiative in this cluster is the Swedish Rheumatology Quality Registry. Um, this is an initiative uh, in Sweden. All clinics, uh, all rheumatology clinics in Sweden uh, are part of this initiative. And uh, it involves 60,000 patients who receive care at these clinics. And uh, what, have we f what are some of the commonalities and differences about these initiatives? So both use patient registries, so patient health data. Um, in the case of Improved Care Now, when pediatric patients are seen by their GI doctors, the doctor uh, puts in the computer all sorts of uh, uh, information about how their health has been improving. So this creates a, a, a large body of longitudinal data tracking these 28,000 patients over years. Um, in the case of the Swedish Rheumatology Quality Registry, what is interesting is that patients report their health data before they see their doctor. So they do it from home. Uh, they can use something like this to report which joints are swollen or tender and what is their ability to function in their daily life. Um, the interesting thing, though, is that uh, Improved Care Now um, interestingly received training from uh, the ASH Center's Marshall Gans, <laughs> and they really are using a model to uh, directly mobilize some of their patients and, and the parents of their patients to uh, get more involved at their local care center in quality improvement effort. And uh, so a small group of uh, activist patients um, and their parents uh, meet twice a year with uh, uh, clinicians uh, at community conferences to really find um, solutions together, to share knowledge and find collective solutions to improve um, the quality of uh, IBD care. Um, even though you see large number of patients here, 28,000 and 60,000, these are mostly patients who enter their data in the case of the mm -hmm. Swedish Rheumatology Quality Registries or whose data is entered by a clinician or a nurse. But the, the number of patients who are actively, actively involved with this initiative is actually much smaller. So in the case of Improved Care Now, 
now, as I said, it is a small group of activists and caregivers who are extremely involved over time, who are making a difference for everybody with uh, pediatric uh, IBD. Um, and then uh, the objective number two, so we clustered our uh, cases uh, along the second objective, which is to provide peer-to-peer -peer patient connections. And we uh, identified two cases in this category. The first case is My Health Teams. My Health Teams is a technology platform out of San Francisco, and they specialize in creating disease communities. They have created, they started with uh, um, a disease community for autism, and they now have 29 disease communities, mostly for chronic condition, autoimmune diseases, and they have over one million members who regularly use these disease communities to find people like them, to discuss their condition, um, and to find tips about medications and clinicians in their area. Um, and the second one is a Facebook breast cancer community. Um, and Facebook is probably one of the most interesting fields where so much is happening in terms of uh, uh, health communities. Uh, mm. And Facebook is figuring out what to do with it. Because, uh, of course, the, the most um, immediate thing to do if you want to create a group is to go on Facebook because it's, it's easy. You can create a group in a matter of seconds. So this is a closed um, group for breast cancer patients and survivors. They have 13,000 patients. They were created last year. Um, and they're extremely active. They have about 150 posts daily. Um, for both group, for both uh, platforms, uh, member engagement is very high, both in terms of frequency, so people log in multiple times a day, uh, and scale. Um, um, and these communities, we found that fill very important information gaps that are unmet by the healthcare system. So uh, patients use these communities because they have questions that might yeah. be embarrassing uh, for their clinician mm -hmm. or uh, where they think that, you know, why do I have to reinvent the wheel? Why don't I just ask a patient who went through this before me, right? Um, and also they offer uh, psychosocial support. Uh, there is unmet by the healthcare system. Members exchange tips on side effects, life hacks, but also emotional support. So women go there to ask other women, what should I expect? I'm going in for a mastectomy. How should I prepare? Which bra should I wear? And things like that that they are, you know, they might, they might not find the right answers from their doctors. Um, and, and members use these communities because of their convenience. So they can check out these communities on their phone whenever they have time. So they don't have to attend an in-person patient-to-patient meeting organized by uh, the center where they're receiving cancer treatment, right? They can connect with women all over the world whenever on, on their time. Um, um, many members commented that they like these communities because of the velocity with which they receive feedback. So with so many people in this community um, uh, active online all the time, uh, you can literally receive answers to your questions within seconds. Um, and there is also a phenomenon of, of redistribution of knowledge because some, uh, for example, some uh, breast cancer patients in these communities receive uh, uh, treatment at um, large academic hospitals, but others uh, are seen at a small rural uh, community hospital, right? So uh, there is some mutual learning going on there. So uh, women learn about uh, new treatment or new <laughs> options for their care, and they discuss these with their doctors. <laughs> uh, this is an example of My Health Teams, one of their community 
is the chronic obstructive pulmonary disease community. And there, you know, members, uh, someone asked, uh, can you explain to me the stages of COPD and what is the average life expectancy? And the question received over 250 answers. And the interesting thing about um, my health teams is that they use, they do active listening of their patient communities, and they use all that knowledge to um, develop these infographics that are really based on, on what patients share and what patients want to know. So this is an infographic on shortness of breath, describing the main symptoms, the triggers, and some life hacks generated by patients on how to uh, reduce uh, and avoid some of the symptoms. Uh, the third objective that we found are, um, is facilitating information access and use. And open nodes and tide pool are the two cases uh, clustered um, for this objective. Open nodes <coughs> is an initiative uh, started locally. Uh, Jan, our guest, will tell you more about that. Um, but they've done pioneering and amazing work. And um, they started with a, a pilot at three hospitals, including Beth Israel. And now um, they have facilitated access to notes for 22 million patients across the US, and I believe also internationally. Um, over And over 100 health systems have uh, um, embraced uh, open notes for their patients, which is, which is truly important work. Um, and Tidepool is, um, is a platform uh, that was um, developed uh, in California to where, where patients with type 1 diabetes can upload all the data from the different devices that they wear. So uh, before Tidepool, uh, people wearing a, um, an insulin pump and, and a continuous glucose monitor had to use different softwares to download data from these uh, devices and to look up data, and they couldn't integrate the data. So what Tidepool did is that they worked with all these manufacturers to convince them to open, open their code. Um, and, and so they offer uh, this elegant platform where patients can visualize all their uh, diabetes data, and they can share their, their diabetes data with their providers. So the patients and providers can have a mm -hmm. conversation about um, how their blood glucose is responding is respond to insulin and make insulin adjustments. Um, and what we found about these two initiatives that, uh, for example, in the case of open notes, uh, patients' access to notes is driven, um, is driven largely by notifications, a sense of urgency in checking out the notes. Uh, um, obviously, someone who's um, dealing with uh, managing a chronic disease is more motivated to check notes than a healthy young person who goes in for her physical. Um, and in Tidepool, instead, we found that the use of the platform is mostly driven by uh, clinicians. So mm -hmm. even though Tidepool hoped to empower their patients to use their data, it's mostly clinicians who tell mm -hmm. their patients, you know, before you see me, use Tidepool to upload all your data, and then we'll look at it together. So um, independent use of data is still pretty limited. Um, what uh, we found with the open notes case is that patients who access their notes were actually very competent to identify errors and omissions in their notes. So one of the resistances to open notes uh, from uh, some clinicians was that they would be flooded with silly requests by patients who would be anxious after reading their notes and would contact them, would, would contact them for, you know, with uh, 
silly request, but that didn't really happen. So their workload didn't increase, and when patients contacted their clinicians, they did it for the right reasons. So they were uh, competent to understand uh, what was wrong in their notes or what was missing in their notes. Um, the problem is that one of the main vehicles to access notes is still the patient portal, <laughs> and portal access is still limited. So about 52% of Americans are offered access to their health record through patient portals, but about 28% have set up patient portal accounts. Um, and especially minority, low socioeconomic status uh, patients are less likely to have uh, patient portals. Uh, and what we found uh, for tide pool is that only sophisticated patients are able to use this technology independently. And this is a screenshot of uh, tide pool, uh, how blood glucose fluctuate, fluctuates uh, throughout the day. And you can see that it requires some numeracy and literacy skills that might not be for, for everybody. Uh, and the final uh, objective of platforms is the co-production of research. So these are uh, initiatives that hope to engage uh, patients to donate their health data, to build uh, uh, large databases of longitudinal data tracking patients' health uh, you know, throughout years, um, and to include patients in the development of a shared research agenda so that researchers work on research studies that matter to patients, so that the research that is developed can be returned to patients to inform their, their care decisions. So the first case in this uh, cluster is IBD Partners. IBD Partners involves about 15,000 adult patients with inflammatory bowel disease and 300 researchers. And the second one is the Healthy Heart Study. It's based out of uh, um, UCSF. Um, and um, they involve about 140,000 patients. And to qualify for the Healthy Heart Study, uh, the bar is very low. All you have to have is a heart. So I also signed up. You don't need to have a heart condition. Um, and it's really easy to sign up. Uh, the only problem is that once you sign up, uh, you have to uh, fill out about 47 surveys. And you're supposed to do it twice a year for a long period of time. So um, you can imagine that the enrollment of volunteers is, is pretty slow. So the Healthy Heart Study wants to be like the digital version of the Framingham Heart Study. Um, and they aspire to reach 1 million users. Um, and getting patients to contribute their data regularly is even harder. So it's easy to get someone excited to sign up, but um, I, I, honest, I will not continue to provide my health data regularly. Um, IBD Partners has a vibrant forum to develop research ideas with patients. And let me show you the forum. So um, uh, this is a screenshot of the forum where patients can pose questions about medicinal, medicinal mar marijuana, what diet, plant-based, whole food, vegan is most likely to help IBD patients, and um, is a paleo or a specific carbohydrate diet helping IBD patients? And all these research questions are really discussed between patients and voted by patients. And the interesting thing about this forum, it is very active because researchers provide feedback to patients. So this forum really enables a dialogue, a very unique dialogue um, that motivates patients to go back and pose more questions. And several of these questions uh, resulted in, in studies where patients are really involved as, uh, as principal invest investigators in, this, uh, in these studies. So uh, engagement in these initiatives 
um, sustained engagement is limited because, as I said, it's, it's easy to sign up, but just a few patients contribute their data regularly. So in the case of IBD partners, out of 15,000, it's only about 700 patients who uh, donate their data regularly. All the others just signed up and never went back. Uh, but there is a small group of patients who are making a difference because they're developing the, the research agenda and serve as principal investigators in some of the studies. Um, and some of the key findings um, of, of this research um, is that peer-to-peer -peer communities appear to, uh, to deliver the most actionable uh, and personalized information uh, to patients. And patients keep going to these communities because they really feel uh, urgent information and emotional support needs. Um, and they also offer social networking opportunities. So people go there to discuss about their family, their puppies, their life, so topics beyond their, their condition. That people really <laughs> enjoy finding new friends. And often the data that patients can access through many of these digital platforms is too sophisticated still uh, and not very actionable. So um, patients may use it to gain some awareness uh, on, on their condition, but not many um, actionable, usable tips on how to, what to do with, with the data and the information to improve their health. We also found that minorities, elderly, low socioeconomic status individuals are less likely users of some of these initiatives, perhaps with the only exception of peer-to-peer -peer platforms, which, for example, Facebook is such, uh, you know, is, is a tool that everybody is using. So those platforms uh, may see more um, diverse group, group groups of users than other initiatives. In, in the case of... Uh, uh, these two initiatives, for example, it's interesting that it, it's mostly white, educated women who donate their data to initiatives like these, um, even though the intention was to capture data from, uh, you know, the, the whole population. Um, and, and, and finally, um, we found that um, engaging everybody all the time may not be necessary, right? So initiatives like uh, um, Improve Care Now or also the... Um, the initiatives that aspire to involve patients in research effort are sustained by the activism of a core group of patients who uh, keep being involved and, and, and donate their time to make a difference for all. So in a nutshell, this is what we've been working on. Uh, I'd like to thank Arkan and, and Victoria, and now we can leave it to, to Jan, and we'll, we'll, we'll take uh, answers later. Okay. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Um, so I have been asked to talk for a few minutes about this uh, program, the Open Notes program, and um, sort of what's happened over the years. Um, um, it's been, it's really interesting to hear some of your preliminary findings. They sound so familiar. Um, so I am a co-founder of this. We started this about a little less than 10 years ago. And I, I want to start by making sure that you understand exactly what we're talking about here. Um, we are, as Elena said, we are trying to open notes, medical notes, to patients. Now, if you go to the doctor, the doctor writes a note about your visit after you leave. Elena showed you her 
portal where she gets care and you could you could look at her she could look at her medications she could look at her allergies she could look at see what her next appointment is she she can't see that note and what we are trying to do is get providers hospitals health systems to open those notes to patients um, and I'll, I'll talk more about sort of the thinking behind that in a second. Um, and I want to show you one more thing. A lot of health systems are now showing patients summaries of their visits. They're called after-visit summaries. And they, an awful lot of them, look like the one on your right. And you can see it's just full of information. It's got your blood pressure. It's got your, your temperature. Uh, it's got what time the appointment was. What the doctor wrote about that same visit is what you see on the left. And that's where the information is. You know, so this person had a knee problem. You know, it, it tells her when she goes home, don't bend your knee too far. It wouldn't be a bad idea if you saw a, a trainer to help you strengthen some particular muscles. If you have pain, you can take some Motrin. And um, that's where the gold is. And hospital systems don't show those on their portals to patients. So um, we were asked to talk about, so why did we do this? Um, as you all know, undoubtedly, medicine has been known to be a little bit patriarchal and, um, um, you know, doctor knows best for a long, long time. Um, in the last few decades, there's been more and more talk about patient engagement and getting patients more active in their care. Um, there's, there's a big movement around shared decision-making where patients are actually supposed to contribute to decisions and not just do what the doctor says. So that's all been going on for a few decades. There has been quite a bit of research confirming what we all kind of know, which is that when we go to the doctor, we listen, we pay attention, but we're a little nervous. And when we leave, we forget half of what was said. And it's actually been shown in research. It's about half. People simply forget. So um, wouldn't it be nice if there was some way to remind ourselves what happened? It's all in the medical record. Since 1996, we've all had a right by federal law to have access to our medical records. Including the notes. Yes. The entire record, including the notes. How many of you have asked for a record? You know, I have, and I was <laughs> not successful. Wow. Wow. Most people don't. We yeah. work um, in transparency. <laughs> um, you, you know, and we make it hard to get it. So if most places, if you ask for a record, number one, you have to find out how to ask. You have to make an official written request. You have to wait. Sometimes they have up to 30 days to answer you. And you have to pay by the page. So how many people do you think do that? Um, um, so, we, so we make it hard. And the idea here, frankly, is to um, make all this easy by putting it online, just like your bank records and everything else. Put it online. You don't have to ask. It's just there. Um, another 
reason this is important is that, you know, medicine is going a million miles an hour. Things are changing so fast. Cost pressures are unbelievable. And if you read the papers or you have health insurance, you know patients are being asked to make more cost-sharing decisions. They, being, they have to decide, am I going to pay out of pocket for this much for this MRI and so forth? So if patients don't have access to these records, the full records, you know, how can we expect them to make good decisions about things like that? Um, and finally, uh, when we were thinking about this, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, um, it was kind of like we were at the right point in history because uh, President Obama made sure, he, he gave, built, uh, in the ACA, there was about almost $40 billion for institutions across the country to make their medical records digital. They moved from paper to digital. So this stuff is all digital now. Finally, there's a way to do this. It's scalable. You can put it online and give it. Now, this is about a half-hour talk on one slide, but I want, to, I want to tell you sort of how this evolved. So we had this idea about 10 years ago that um, these notes would be valuable to patients and we, we should make them available. So um, with all newish ideas, you know, you've got to do some kind of proof of concept. And we did uh, the little research study that Elena mentioned where we did three, three institutions. We did a one-year pilot with 100 primary care docs. And it was a very simple study. We simply said, for these volunteering doctors, we're going to open your notes to your patients who have portal accounts for the next year, and then we're going to study what happened. Um, we did this study. Uh, we published the paper from that in 2012, and it was really a seminal paper, partly because the results were so astounding. The patients absolutely <coughs> loved it. Eighty like percent of patients actually looked at notes, and we honestly didn't know if they would. Eighty percent looked. Um, they reported things that were important. They felt more in control of their care. They took their medications better, did their diagnosis for the first time. And 99% of them wanted this to continue. 99%. Who does a survey and gets 99% on anything? And that, and that includes the 20% who didn't even look. So um, patients really wanted this. This study got a lot of press. It was um, because it was new, and the press, reporters, editors love this kind of story. All right. So um, we had a good thing, and we decided, along with our funder who challenged us, can you get anybody else to do this? So um, we, we started talking to people and um, got some early adopters. One of the first systems that adopted this, believe it or not, was the entire VA, the Veterans Affairs <laughs> Institutions all over the country. So that was really important. And, um, and we got a few others like uh, Mayo adopted early, um, MD Anderson adopted early. And we, we were brave enough, we set a goal and announced a goal in 2015 that we wanted to make this the standard of care. Um, 
one of the things also in, in, the, in the early adopters was these three institutions adopted this, not just in primary care, but across the institution. So all the specialty clinics, um, mental health, believe it or not, psychi psychiatric notes, um, all, not just doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, physical therapists, etc. And they adopted it, they implemented it institution-wide, and it went fine. Okay. So we made this goal in 2015. We want to make this a standard of care, and we further, furthermore, we put a number on it. We said we wanted 50 million people by 2018. And um, we kind of did all the things you would expect if, for somebody who's trying to create change. I mean, we hired a dissemination team. Um, a couple of outstanding people, including a physician who has had um, jobs in every healthcare setting you can imagine, including um, regulatory and quality organizations and all over the place, knows everybody. His last job was um, as running the rate, healthcare rating section of Consumer Reports. So he's well known, he knows everybody. So that worked really well. Um, we also set up tracking systems. We now have a Salesforce tracking system that helps us keep track of all this. Um, and we started basically adopting, going after who we thought would be early adopters. So the big academic medical centers, um, uh, you know, kind of the usual suspects, um, to not only to adopt, but also to advocate. So we tried to find people who would speak for this, and a lot of people did and do. Um, and then we basically tried to get in front of every audience we could find, which includes all those people, uh, professional groups, you know, the AMA, the nurses' uh, associations, disease organizations, the American Cancer Society, et cetera, um, insurers, um, the health information technology organizations, including the people who manufacture the electronic medical record systems, um, quality groups, the patient and family advocacy organizations. We gave talks, wrote paper, papers. We were out there. Um, we also brought on a communications team and started maintaining really good press relations. Um, we built a fabulous new website. I invite you to check it out. Um, we started talking about maybe making an app. Um, haven't decided yet. It's still um, under consideration. And we made it uh, really, we made a conscious decision to um, really kind of be a regular presence in Washington with the, because there's so much going on in the regulatory world around health information technology. And we also went on the Hill, um, you know, for visits with senators and representatives with um, organizations that had adopted. So we did Hill visits. So, you know, nothing that would surprise you, but it was a multi-pronged approach. And we were pretty successful. Uh, we had, by, at the end of 2013, we had 3 million patients in a few states. 2015, 5 million more organizations. 2016, we got up to 10. And 
nowhere around 20, and we're in almost every state in the Union. Um, and we have some in Canada and Sweden and a couple other places. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about um, going beyond open notes. Open notes is a great idea. You can read your notes, but it's passive. You're just reading. So in the interest of you know, kind of building on this momentum, we're starting to think about um, patients con and families contributing to notes. Now, that's where I'm going. First, I want to just mention patient safety. One of the benefits of patients being able to read their entire records, we believe, is that it will be a boon to patient safety because patients know their history better than anybody. They're going to catch mistakes before anybody else does if we can get them to read their records. And um, this is these are a couple of pretty compelling quotes, one from a patient and one from a primary care physician. Um, because we're all human. We all make mistakes. Computers can't catch these errors. And errors can be devastating if you don't catch them. And things that are wrong in the record that, you know, just pretty soon people don't see them. And it can be, you know, it's just an accident waiting to happen. Okay, so um, we have done one study where we're inviting um, patients to read their records and then asking them to tell us if they're mistakes. Now, this is really hard because patients are so respectful of their doctors. They really don't want to bring up that, uh, <clears throat> I think you made a mistake. <laughs> they really don't want to do that. So the part of the challenge here is how do you encourage patients to speak up? Um, and the experiment we did was an online reporting system. They read their note, and at the bottom there was a little, in, little invitation. Do you want to give us some feedback? Were there any mistakes? And then they could go online and tell us what they thought. And that did not go to the doctor. It went to a patient relations representative who's not a professional, somebody who could talk them through it. And then it eventually got reviewed by a doctor, not their doctor. And it only went to their doctor if after all that review, they decided this really does need to be followed up. And um, it was interesting because um, patients did find mistakes, and they were very responsible about it. You know, doctors, one of the doctors' biggest worries about all of this is just what Elena said. If I let patients see this stuff, they're going to, I'm just going to have an avalanche of questions and things I don't have time to respond to. But they, they don't do that, and they didn't do it here either. Um, it was a very small number of patients. They were all things that deserved to be looked at. So um, we have not really disseminated this in particular. We have a couple of other pilots underway. This is a harder sell just because of this fear of patients responding too robustly. <laughs> um, we'll get to it. but. Um, so far, we haven't done a lot with this. Um, the next place we're thinking about patient involvement um, is something we call our notes. 
And this is the idea that patients and families will contribute to records as well as clinicians. It's, it's almost like the Swedish example where the patients reported on their joints and so forth before they went to the visit. Um, and again, we're, st we're talking about proof of concept again, which we're, we're just starting a study which is um, basically a proof of concept study. And the idea is that about a week before a visit, a patient will get an email saying, tell us a couple things before you come in. And they'll tell us how they've been doing since the last visit. And they will um, tell us what they want to talk about. Um, one of the kind of uh, legends of medical care is the hand on the doorknob problem. You know, you, you're a doctor, you finish the visit, you're just opening the door to leave, and the patient says, oh, by the way, you know, and then they bring up the most important thing. <laughs> so, um, so this might help that, and it will, we think it will definitely help just making sure the most important things get covered. Um, I think there is a potential for increased engagement here because patients are going to think before they come in. One point is they're not thinking in the waiting room and filling out an, this out on an iPad. They're thinking about it at home where they have time to think. So we're hopeful. Um, and doctors are actually more enthusiastic about this idea than they are about open notes because they think this just might save them some time. And we all know doctors are just frantic these days. Um, okay, then I was asked to just talk about what some of the challenges have been. Um, one of the big challenges here is we are dealing with legacy electronic medical records. You know, most electronic medical records started out as billing systems. So they were built as billing systems. Keeping medical records was kind of a later development. And these have been you know, they were started decades ago. And at this point, there are these gigantic systems. They're not built with the latest technology. Um, they were never built with the idea of websites. And all these patient portals are really clunky. You know, to ask patients to use them now in the era of these dazzling websites is kind of difficult. Um, and they are not built for any kind of input from anybody but the, but the signing clinician. So there are some real technical hurdles here. Um, but it is what it is. So, you know, we're working on it. Um, in 20s, it, it was interesting to hear, uh, you made some comment about policy. There have been many, many um, discussions about re various regulations le around electronic medical records over the last five years. Um, you may have heard of meaningful use, which requires places to make me uh, EMRs meaning meaningfully useful. Um, and we were asked by the feds to consider making open notes a requirement in about 2016 as part of meaningful use. And this was a really tough decision because on the one hand, it would just instantly require it everywhere, you know, 
were done. And in the end, we decided not to do it because we were new enough in the field. There, we had a lot of interest in um, various developments around this. And we thought if we required it, it would, everybody would implement it at the minimum um, functional requirements, and we didn't really want that. We wanted people to continue developing. So we decided not to make it a requirement. Um, we've had some second thoughts, not very many. We still basically think we did the right thing. Um, and in fact, this is coming around again. There are several regulatory things that are brewing that may end up doing this anyway. Um, in the near future. Um, culture change is even harder than you think. You know, we are not selling software. We are not, <laughs> this is not a thing. It's a concept. It's a movement. We're just asking people to make a decision and do it and turn something on that already exists. It's pretty simple. Um, and it's harder than you think. <laughs> it's really, really hard. Um, there's a legend in medicine that any, any new thing takes 17 years to really get adopted. Sometimes I think that actually may be true. One of the things that happens, you know, we're trying to convince these institutions, really the doctors in the institutions, to do this. And a lot of places really want to be on our maps. So they say, yeah, we're doing it. We've done it. And what, one of the things that we're facing is that a lot of these places do suboptimal ins installations. So they will turn it on. They'll let the doctors participate if they want to. They will not tell the patients that it's available. Um, they don't remind the doctors that it's available. So it's, it's on, but nobody's using it. So it's, it's a subterranean implementation. Um, and we're now at the point where um, we feel like we've gotten all the early adopters, all the places that are, you know, they're interested in the next thing. They have the resources to devote to doing this. Um, and now we're getting into the mainstream, which is going to be another kettle of fish um, because people need, they need really turnkey implementations um, if, if you're not a rich organization. And turnkey is really hard with these legacy systems, so it's kind of a catch-22. Yeah, I wonder if we maybe should stop here, because yeah. we just have a few minutes for a question. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Is that all right? Yes, absolutely. Great. So uh, maybe we could open it up for questions that people might have. About. Yes, back here, if you could identify yourself. Thank you so much, uh, Arturo. Arturo Reynoso, community member. Um, Jan, I have to ask the question directly to you. Patient confidentiality. And I'm sorry. Patient confidentiality. Patient confidentiality. Yes. Uh, the whole thing with Obamacare, uh, insurers trying to get access to records so that they can determine whether there are pre-existing conditions and all of those other things. Uh, who is going to be uh, able to get access to that besides the patients and the doctor? Thank you. So. This is just like logging on to your bank records. It's a secure portal. You need to be you. You need to have a password. And nobody else should be able to see it. it it's not any more hackable than anything else. 
yeah. Your tests it's, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. David. Yeah, um, I'd like maybe just two observations and a question. So and some of them are kind of questions, so I apologize. But one is, um, uh, does this actually improve efficacy? Like, so the patients are happier, but are they healthier? Are they... Like, is it, is it having that impact? So that mm -hmm. was a better decision. Yeah. Yep. So that felt yep. like the big elephant yep. in the room for me. Yep. Um, and then the other two things is uh, there was a lot of talk about um, who is being served and how well they're being served. Did you look at groups, for example, like I have to imagine there are separate groups for people who are uninsured, where they're coming together and having conversations. Because um, you may actually just discover that you're only dealing with people who are insured and are having a conversation. And one way to determine whether or not there's a different conversation is like the uninsured maybe having very different conversations that are actually equally helpful and are just, that's why they're not represented. And, um, and the other piece around that too is um, you, you guys were very worried about is there a certain skill set required for you to participate? Well, there may actually be like, so you're worried, are we not reaching people down below? But I actually imagine if you're uninsured, any conversation is a higher quality of care than nothing. <laughs> and so it actually may, it may prove that these groups are actually improving health outcomes for those who are the most marginalized, right. and finding a way to do, finding a way of like measuring that would be really interesting. And then I was just totally blown away that the, the health, the heart study people weren't just asking for the raw data themselves. Like, can I just connect mm. you to my Fitbit? Like, why make mm. me fill out all these things? You probably get lots yeah. and lots of data if you just ask for the raw data. Yeah, yeah. You want to answer the efficacy question? So, that's a wonderful question. It's a very good question. Um, two things. One is that. It is really hard to separate out the impact of this. You know, there's so many things impacting on people's health. Separating out the impact of actually reading notes is probably going to be impossible. We have one study that shows that patients who are taking um, blood pressure medications are actually more likely to pick up their refills if they have access to their notes. That's all we have so far. It's going to be really hard to make it a black and white. That was an RCC? Better. No, it was not. It was an observational study. But, but there it was. Yeah, and about your questions about the uninsured. No, we didn't look at platforms for, uh, for uninsured people. We imagine, though, that on, for example, the Facebook breast cancer group, that is a venue where people who are uninsured can access some information. So when we discussed how um, information gets redistributed, that might be one way, right, where people who are uninsured access these groups to, to learn. We know that there is a lot of patient activism. For example, I discussed with people who are very active in the diabetes world to uh, distribute insulin to uninsured patients who cannot uh, have, you know, they don't have access to a vital drug, right? So sometimes these patients take matters in their own hands and they have more insulin than they, than they need. And through these groups, they give some of their insulin, something that they should absolutely not do, but they, they give it to other patients who don't have access to it because they don't have insurance at the time. Um, and in terms of... Uh, um, using passive data, right, through Fitbits and other health trackers. So both the initiatives to engage patients in research do that. Um, and actually, patients are happy to connect their wearable devices. Uh, the problem is that these studies want to know a lot more uh, about your quality of life, about... So, for example, what the... Yeah, and, and what the... Uh, the Healthy Heart Study is doing, they're developing an app funded by the NIH 
um, and it's going to be a white label app that any institution interested in involving uh, people in providing their health data can use. And this app is really designed to address some of the limitations that they have with their broader portal because nobody has time to answer 47 surveys, right? So this app uh, called Eureka is going to be much leaner and it promises to make it easier for people to update uh, their information, you know, where, when they're on the T, when they have time, uh, in a much more punctual way. Hello. I'll just talk. Uh, I'm Rafi Wande. I'm a student here at the Kennedy School in the Development Economics Program. And I thought it was very interesting your work that you're doing um, with bringing uh, medical records online. Uh, one, one of my observations is that you're, you're trying to give patients uh, more perfect information from the doctors. But when I was reading these notes, one thing that I thought was perfect information from your doctor might not be very useful to patients, right? Because like, it seems like the doctors are identifying diseases and possible mm -hmm. courses for treatment, mm -hmm. but they're not telling patients like what that means, right? So like, for example, like, you know, you, you might meet somebody and they're like, yeah, I hurt my foot like five years ago. I had a surgery, my doctor said don't run. But it's like five years later. Did did it not heal? Can you still not run? Right? Like, wh why are you not like, like, what? Where was the missing information that made you think that you'd never, you'll never be able to heal from this? You'll never be able to do this activity. And I think it comes from this idea that that the doctors are focused on identifying the disease, course of treatment, but not yeah. what that means. Yeah, I I, I can't argue with you. Um, the it may not be perfect information, but it's information that should be available. You know, and you would be amazed how many people say to us things like, I finally get how my doctor's looking at this. It helps me understand what my doctor's thinking. And so, you know, in this day and age, why shouldn't people have access to that? You know, it's not the whole picture, but it's an important part of picture. Scott. Thank you. Well, very interesting presentations. Um, I've actually heard a, a, at least a couple physicians say that um, taking notes has become so burdensome that it's mm -hmm. it's really detracted from the quality of interaction yeah. um, and from their joy in practicing as physicians. And I and I wondered, you know, does do, do the open notes make this more burdensome? Yeah. And then I had, yep. I had a question for Ellen. I mean, so the, some of these fora can communicate information that's just dead wrong. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the obvious examples in recent years has been autism and vaccines. Yeah. Yeah. And I just wondered, you know, what, what, what do you think about yeah. this okay. issue? Right. Uh, quick answer to the first one. Um, you're right. Doctors are overburdened. They're burning out. Um, what we have found is that even though they're very worried that this will be more work, for most of them, it's not. For most of them, it's not. We think that notes overall have gotten a little better because of this, but most doctors say they've changed very little. 
they think a little bit more about the words they use and so forth. And, and thank you, Scott, for the question about the quality, the validity of the information. That is a very legitimate concern. And what we found with this research is that um, the administrators, the moderators of these communities make a huge difference in uh, policing uh, content uh, mm -hmm. that doesn't belong in these groups. So in the case of my health teams, each um, uh, health community has my health team staff that removes content that is about selling snake oil because of course there are opportunistic people who don't have the condition and sign up just to prey on other patients uh, so they have ways to weed those posts out and in the case of Facebook uh, what was interesting is that this Facebook group was funded by a woman in the UK who has breast cancer she's 31 she's a single mom and she's online all the time uh, pretty much to uh, moderate the conversation and she enlisted another patient in the US to cover a different time zone and another one in Australia so they have pretty much all time zones covered with active administrators who will intervene if a discussion takes a wrong way or um, and some you know they also want to accommodate all points of view so if someone really wants to post about natural treatments to breast cancer they don't really eliminate the content but they qualify the content as like something that is not evidence-based so that mm -hmm. other members know that but certainly other forms that don't have such a thoughtful uh, moderator uh, that might that might be much more of a concern yeah I'm afraid uh, we're out of time I just wanted to highlight uh, kind of step back a little bit and speculate about what's generating this phenomenon. Um, and so I think it, you mentioned it a little bit. I think it's a confluence of at least three factors. One is the desire for more patient engagement and the re response to the fall in legitimacy of all kinds of experts, physicians mm -hmm. among them, right? So there, we expect more equality uh, from the experts who are serving us, and this is one part of it, right? And then the obvious part is the rise of digital technology that creates opportunities for engagement at, at kind of scale and depth that is hard to imagine before. But I, I think, and I wish I'd gone to, I had a public health degree so I could speak in a more informed way about this, but I think that a huge part of what's driving it is the changing nature of disease, right? So most of the things that we're talking about deal with chronic diseases, not infectious diseases. Right? So right. these are yeah. rich, developed country problems in which a disease etiology is, is not like, you know, you can't take penicillin or a vaccine. These are things like arthritis or, or IBD or, or diabetes are these chronic diseases right. with uh, intensely complicated causality yeah. in which uh, you manage them, you don't cure them, and in which the balance of effort between provider and patient dramatically shifts because it's about how you live your life not just whether you take the drugs but right. how you live your life right. and so it creates the need and the opportunity for a much more kind of participatory mm -hmm. engagement in healthcare provision and so I think it's all three of those things and it's easy to focus on the technology and the demand for engagement but it's also the problem that we're trying to solve right I mean if it were cholera or uh, right. or just uh, or, or malaria right you wouldn't want all these notes. You wouldn't want to right. be getting on right. a Facebook form every day. You just want to take the pill. But that's not available because mm -hmm. these are chronic diseases. And so 
um, it's a, I think it's important to kind of step back and say, what is this phenomenon all about? And so I think those, those three are part of it. But thank you very much again. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.